Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on the documentary film Mr. Soul, represented here by producer, director, and writer Melissa Hazlip and music supervisor Ed Gerard. Let me read you this bit about the film from the PBS website. Quote, in 1968, America's first black variety show, Soul, helmed by producer and host Ellis Hazlip, premiered on public television. The pioneering series ran for five years, cementing itself as not only a vehicle to celebrate African-American artistry, community, and culture, but also as a platform for political expression and a powerful force in the fight for social justice. Mr. Soul portrays in exquisite detail a revolutionary time in American culture and entertainment through vibrant archival footage and interviews with numerous black luminaries who appeared on Soul or were impacted by it. While chronicling the journey of Soul, Mr. Soul recounts the life and contributions of the late Hayslip, who was steeped in the New York City arts community prior to creating the show. Ellis quickly stepped into the role of the host of his creation, where his earnest demeanor, low-key interviewing style, and his passion for the black artistic community and their works, including books, the spoken word, music, film, and dance, culminated in a show that depicted the black experience in a bold and unapologetic way. Hazlip's creation shifted the media focus from what was then uniformly images of inner-city poverty and violence to instead shine a light on the vibrant contemporary black arts movement, end quote. I cannot recommend this film enough, and I'm grateful to be able to share this conversation with you. Enjoy. And so we're going to jump in. So welcome, uh, Melissa and Ed. Um, thank you for making time to join us today. Um, and I wonder if each of you could take a quick second, uh, maybe starting with Melissa, and just introduce yourself for everybody. Let us know maybe geographically where you are and tell us a little bit about your road uh, to coming to make the film or, or your involvement in making the film. Sure. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here today. And thank you guys for watching the film sitting down in the middle of a Friday. That's always a treat. Of course, what day is it anyway in, in pandemic land? But thank you so much. Um, so I'm Melissa, and I wrote and directed and produced the film along with an amazing team because it's teamwork makes the dream work, as you know, um, Ed especially. Um, so I'm out here in New York, uh, just north of the city a little bit in the lower Hudson Valley, a little town called um, Croton-on-Hudson. I have been living in an igloo for the past week, basically, with 18 <laughs> inches of snow. We just started to dig out a little bit. Um, and this film is really special to me. We've been working on it for over 10 years. Literally shot the first interview in 2009. A lot has happened since then. But it's just really exciting to bring this film to fruition now and to share it with audiences now, especially. It's about my uncle, Ellis Hazlett, but it's more importantly about our country, our nation, our music, which really makes it a universal story for everybody. So I'm super excited to speak with you guys. And if we run out of time, just know I'm super accessible. Uh, you can hit me up on all of our socials, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Mr. Soul the Movie. Um, and we can continue the conversation. That's great. Thank you, Melissa. Welcome. Uh, Ed, can you, uh, can you do the same? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Ed Girard. Um, I am remotely in Woodstock, New York, which has been my home for my family roots go back a couple hundred years here. So I'm not going anywhere. Um, uh, and generally, I've been in the business for a while. Been a, I manage a lot of artists, but I've also been a music supervisor in films for a number of years. And I had the uh, very fortunate experience to uh, meet Melissa uh, with her on this movie. And I had just came off a movie that I worked with uh, Rob Glasper on, you know, uh, about Miles Davis called Miles Ahead. And I think Melissa obviously saw that and was intrigued by the work we did. And uh, I came in, saw the movie, and there was two things immediately. The very first thing was the very first scene when I see the toe tapping and I hear Al Green and just shoots up and I see Al Green. I'm like, that's it. I'm done. Yeah. I'm in but more importantly when the movie finished I was just blown away because something I grew up in New York and that was a New York you know movie I mean excuse me New York show and um, I didn't know that much about it at all you know and I was surprised I've been in the business and then to see this story just blew me away and, and uh, I knew that I had to work on it because no matter what happened I believed and I believe this to be true still, it's such an educational boom that it's going to be talked about and in the educational system in our country for a long time. So I'm like, hey, man, I'm in. Whatever I have to do, That's I'm great. in. So that was it. That's great. Thank you. Um, Melissa, I have to ask, um, you mentioned that uh, you started recording the first material or gathering the first material in 2009. Mm-hmm. What the hell? If this is this is 2021. <laughs> what up? Tell us a little bit about like the you know how does a bill become a law? How does how does that go from the initial seed of an idea um, to starting the process to getting a film on the screen? Um, why does it take so long? Is that typical? Did you face unique obstacles? Uh, could you take us on that? journey a little bit yeah absolutely and yes i know when you do the math that seems like a super long time and we're either the you know picture of dorian gray or the story of benjamin button one of the two but um (laughs) what's unique about this this particular trajectory for this film is that we decided a long time ago that we wanted it to sort of follow the same funding trajectory as the original show so Seoul was funded wow. by grants like the Ford Foundation in 1968, which is really spectacular. Sort of the, um, you know, the beginning and the birth of diversity and inclusion on television. And since public television was for the public, you know, for us, by us, we thought, well, let's match that mandate in, in, the, in the modern world and make this a film that's for us, by us funded by grants and you know it's a lofty goal we never knew it was going to take so long and it's really unusual to start with a film with an idea a great idea but still just an idea so that means we're not funded we don't have any you know secret sugar daddies in the corner we didn't have a broadcast scheduled broadcast date or um, any type of contract And we certainly were not based on anything. So it was not a documentary based on like say a Pulitzer Prize winning historical novel. So we had to do everything from scratch. And the length of time it took us was partially because of the funding, uh, putting the funding pieces together 
And as you know, public funding for any kind of project, but particularly a film, is very competitive. You can apply to Sundance 10 times and not get the Sundance grant 10 times, which is what happened. <laughs> or, you know, you can, is that a record? <laughs> uh, no, my record actually was 17 times. I applied for one grant 17 times. And then that's when someone was like, Melissa, maybe that's not the tree you want to bark at. <laughs> but I was like, well, we need the funding. Um, so it is unusual. And trust me, it doesn't necessarily have to be this way. And I certainly would not have chosen the duration of this you know, funding period but ironically the timing that the film is being released now is so perfect so it almost feels like the times have caught up with the film and especially after what happened you know all of the incredible unrest uh from last summer and this sort of new focused gaze on how we can move forward together as a country in the midst of this sort of racial uh, reckoning and you know suddenly this type of content and the idea of looking back at the contributions of of black americans in music and culture was all the more poignant and more prescient and so even though it took us a really long time it feels like the film is really right on time yeah. but in terms of what it took to make it it was it's so diy you just can't believe it even though it's a really prestigious film with prestigious artists and you know premium music we were like a, the little engine that could with a bunch of really devoted filmmakers and ex, and ex, and we built out the team with you know spectacular talent including Ed Gerard and everybody understood what we were trying to do and all it would take would be like a distributor to sort of notch it up to the premium level so right now we are on PBS we were acquired um, by PBS for the PBS public broadcasting and we were about to sign a deal with a streaming platform and we do have an educational um, distribution. So, you know, it's been an unusual um, journey, but we have finally arrived and it's really exciting. Are you going to break the news uh, here of who the streaming partner is? Is that what you're saying? You want this to be the exclusive? <laughs> <laughs> I wish, man. Everybody. All right. All I right. don't have the offer yet. I literally have <laughs> You know what? You, you make time for us. You rearrange the time when our screening runs over. And that's not enough for me. I, I want more. That's just, that's, that's, that, that's, that's the kind of bad person I am. Um, well, you, you said you, you met, you used the phrase uh, DIY. And I think in certain contexts that has almost an aesthetic um, connotation. But I have to say, I, you know, from the minute I had the, by the way, the same experience as Ed, like the, the Al Green, just like I was floored from the minute yeah. it started. But um, nothing about this looks um, lo-fi. I mean, um, some of the aesthetic choices about how you integrated the material from the show and just it, it's it's really a beautiful production. And I promise I'd say that even if you weren't sitting here. Um, <laughs> but um, I have a quick question about about the funding. And I think Ant does as well. Um, I'll try to make sure that we're not asking the same question. Um, did the Ford Foundation come in this time? And um, what was the Ford Foundation sort of doing in 1968? Was, was this was this contextually right for them, or was this like yeah. we're trying to reposition ourselves? You know, what was their mission? Do you know? Yes, their mission in 1968 is very similar to their mission now, but their mission to be somewhat of I I think retroactively we can look back and say. Uh, that they were the incubators of freedom of expression and diversity and inclusion on television. They didn't have those sort of that sort of terminology back then, but they were always about initiatives of 
equality, social justice, equal justice, etc. So remember that Seoul was born at a time in 1968 when the country was really fractured on the heels of the civil rights movement and Jim Crow, everything that was happening. And, and folks were trying to reimagine themselves as Sonia Sanchez says in the film on this American landscape. And so they recognized after the, um, uh, when the PBS Broadcast Act was enacted and this whole idea of the Kerner Commission was impaneled, that there had to be some sort of recognition in, the, the, in public media that we needed to really accurately uh, reflect what was happening in the nation and that meant to give more opportunity for people of color to have a presence on television and in media. And so they wanted to be about that change. So yes, they came on for $3.5 million in 1968, which is absolutely, I mean, in, if we were to think about how much that is now, that was really, really um, revolutionary of them. But keep yeah. in mind that that was only for the first year and it was part of their initiative of funding public media, which was very new because public media was funded, you know, down from the government. For example, the um, Corporation for Public Broadcasting was funding PBS. And so they were coming in on that mandate. Now, here we are 50 years later, I went to them as uh, to request finishing funds because I had a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, which is also very hard to get. It was over half a million dollars. But the restriction was that we had to have a cost share with the budget and we had to have another very large nonprofit entity come in to promise the rest of the budget. And so that the idea of Ford Foundation working in tandem with the NEH was very um, appealing to them. They'd done it before. And it was also a, a way for them to look back yeah. and pat themselves on the back, you know. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So somewhat of an anniversary of their um, being the custodians of this type of freedom of expression. We came in on, you know, you have to come in for a grant with just films under a very specific, um, almost like a theme. And we had uh, the theme was creative expression and equal justice. And so it was perfect for us to come in under that heading. And we, that's how we were able to get the grant from Ford, but we reminded them, Hey, you guys, you know, you funded this 50 years ago. Isn't it a great anniversary to fund it again? Yeah, that's neat. Before and I now Melissa, to... And now Melissa is, is driving a Ford Bronco. I just want to... Oh. <laughs> 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 um, and, and before I moved on to my next question for Ed, did you, uh, you want to chime in with a question? Sure, yeah. So, um, Melissa, thank you so much. Ed, thank you so much for this. Um, I, I have a text thread right now going with my four siblings um, about like, has had anybody heard of the show? Like what the fuck? Where, where was the show? The show's amazing. So I remember like when dad watched it, I, the question is kind of related to the funding. Melissa, this week I watched um, your film. I watched uh, Judas and the black Messiah. And I watched one night in Miami and um, there's a lot of anger. Certainly there's a lot of confusion um, and there's just really an awakening to how much of our history feels like it's been sort of wiped away. Um, all of our history, but certainly the history of the black experience has been sort of wiped away or whitewashed or just muted. And so given the arc that you started this in 2009 to now, 
I guess I'm just curious, are you feeling like there's more reception through distributors and, and funders um, to wanting to tell these stories and, and sort of, you know, has, has the tide changed and is there going to be more of this good stuff coming? Yeah, thank you, Ant. And shout out to your four siblings on, on the text thread there. Um, I do <laughs> like to say that this is the greatest show you've never heard of. And a lot of people feel that way. And in, in, in saying that, it's wonderful that we sort of allow ourselves to, even now, to explore something that we should have known or, or fall in love with something that was right there, but somewhat out of reach. And it's totally fine. You know, it's, it's actually exciting to be able to look back at our own history and realize here's this pocket of sort of unsung hero, unsung you know, that vibe is is really great. And to be able to look back and find something you didn't know about, even though it may have been right under your nose or right on your public television, it's it's a way for all of us to sort of revisit this moment and, and reflect differently about our shared history. Uh, what I think has happened, especially now, is that there is renewed interest. And it's very exciting to think that the way things have shifted in the country, certainly the conversations we've had since last summer, it gives an opportunity to kind of reflect differently around what the contributions of black culture have been. Some of us are super aware of it and others just hadn't really turned on that, that, you know, that perspective. And we welcome all, we welcome everybody. You know, this isn't just a black film. It's a, it's a film about our country. Black history is American history and the music is our, everyone's music. It's the soundtrack of everyone's lives. And that's what was pretty special, I think, about the show Soul, is that even though it was a show for us, by us, by Black people, it was also very inclusive and in saying, we want to show what's happening in the community and we invite everyone to join us, you know, welcome to the party. And so in our film, I mean, I know there's other films you mentioned, but there, the only the rage and frustration you might feel is based on the truth of what, what happened and the demise of the of the series, thanks to the administration at the time, our dear beloved Nixon. But for us, we see the film as a, a source of joy and the idea that you can have black joy in spite of everything that's happened and that music is joy and culture is joy. And so we wanted the film to be uplifting and, um, and inspiring um, because we know that there's plenty of bad news out there. And certainly right now, as we're all grappling with how to move forward after the events of last summer. So we think of Mr. Soul really as being a, a positive film. And, and even though it's enlightening and, and educational, it's also just really fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, my, my introduction to the show um, was through uh, a YouTube clip I saw several years ago, and it was from the, um, the Bill Withers McCoy Tyner episode. Oh, yes. um, I'm sort of a McCoy Tyner nerd, but um, that it's what's interesting to me is the era or the years that the show ran, the span of uh, of 68 to 73 is, you know, um, amongst my music nerd friends, you know, when we talk about what was the best era of music or if you could go back in time or you when you have those fun sort of dinner table conversations with people, mm -hmm. I mean, you could not pick a better five or six year span yeah. For really all kinds of music in America, especially whether it was soul, R&B, jazz, rock, um, uh, electronic music, like so much was was either at its peak or at its beginning. 
um, super interesting, thriving time. And I, I wonder, Ed, if you could speak to a little bit about, um, I, I hope it's not too sort of nerdy or an inside baseball question, but I know that, you know, music rights and acquiring music for film can be difficult. Can you talk a little bit about um, the kinds of conversations you had to have? Was it expensive? Was it bureaucratic? Um, what was the reception of sort of like the, the business side of, of getting access to the music? Yes, I will talk about that because it's, it's, it's a great story. But I was right after Mr. Soul, I did another doc on Hunter Thompson running for sheriff in Aspen. And your point about music in that period was 1969, 1970. And when I got into it, because his palette was wide as well. And you just started listening to all the deep cuts of all these people. And you just go, Really, it was the best five-year period in music. So absolutely. Um, these things are always difficult because of budgetary issues. You know, I mean, docs are made you know, by love and no money for the most part. Um, to speak on the other point, <clears throat> Melissa was able to gather a great lot of really, really, really um, great professionals that do their work fantastic. Besides myself, we had a great clearance person, Kathy Carlpella, that helped out and part of the conversation. We had a great music editor and Todd Casca who works with the Coen Brothers and anything else. But everybody just looked at the film and go, I don't care. We're all in. And we all made it work. Um, you know, there was so much music in it based <clears throat> mainly on the performances and the cut that Melissa had been working on and had and those things we had to clear. Now, the one part is, is there's two parts of clearances. There's the clearing the masters and clearing the, the sink and the publishing. We didn't have to really deal with the masters because it was part of the TV show. And that was a, 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 a deal that Melissa had sort of in place as the, 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 the rights for the performances per se. And it, it was an error before record companies made you sign a piece of paper that said, you can't go on any show live unless we own it. And so this was before that. So thank God for that, right? Um, we had to come up creatively with a, a financial solution uh, uh, that was going to be fair to everybody, but was going to work in the budget. And we had to come up with our most favored nations uh, quote yeah. that was going to make it. We had so many, we had something like 75 cues or something. It was crazy. Right. Um, and then on top of the performances, you know, um, there were parts in the, in the movie that there were songs being played from that era to sort of give it the, the, the time frame that's needed for the narrative, right? So we, we made creative choices of either keeping that and trying to come up with the money to pay for it, or this is where a guy like Rob Glasper comes in, who we hired as the composer, who can come in and kind of create a score for those moments. And mm. so we, A, eliminate those sinks and paying for that, and give the film a more narrative with the musical score. Um, but it, it, the, those conversations, you know, uh, were tough, to be honest with you. It wasn't a lot of money. Um, you know, uh, I have a good relationship for doing this for so many years with publishers and everything else. So they see the, the work that I've done and go, okay, well, you know, you always come in asking for favors, but you know what? it always works out. So what do you have for me this time? Right. It was that kind of question. Right. Yeah. And you had to really do a descriptive narrative of the film and of Ellis, uh, cause nobody really did know about it, you know, and you had to explain how important the film was. We had to show the film or parts of the film, um, certainly how the music was used in it to be able to get it. Once we were able to get, a couple of the key figures that appeared in the film, you know, the earth, wind and fires and people like that who remember being in 
soul because it was that much of a big moment for them first time on on tv and 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 being part of that that experience you got it you get a couple people signed off and um Start it starts to, it starts to build. Yeah. It was a couple of really difficult things. Uh, two of them, one Stevie wonder, uh, for no other reason other than he's just Stevie wonder and his camp is like a lot of people that kind of, I'm not sure what they do, you know? And so you, you just never know how, how you get to him, you know? And he has to sign off on everything. Right. So that took two years or more. And of both, and it's such a pivotal was, moment in the film, too. You had, you had to have it. We had to what are you going to You're going to cut that out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And quite frankly, we, we technically speaking, we weren't supposed to do this, but we did start playing it in film festivals without permission. Yeah, but yeah. Hey, that's that common, happened? though. That happens. Yeah, well, happens. it does. They don't like it, but it is, it's okay, you know. And but we did, and I think that that helped. Well, that actually helped eventually get the message to Stevie Wonder because the tremendous work Melissa did in getting it out independently to film festivals and doing really, really well was something we kept on throwing back to them going, Hey, it won this audience award. It won this. And, you know, and Bob, people talking about it. So eventually in the, in the final hour, they, they did come around and they signed off on it for, uh, for the little money that we had. The other one was an interesting one. The other one was Patty LaBelle singing over the rainbow. Um, it is the toughest song to clear in the business because it's one of the most famous copyrights. They want tremendous amount of money, which we did not have. Um, it was one of those conversations you don't like to have, but it was like, excuse me, do you want to be the only people, okay, that are not going to be in this great film about the great, a great black experience called Soul? Okay, which happened to be, by the way, the very first performance ever on, on the show was Patti LaBelle singing Over the Rainbow. Um, so that took a little bit more like, y you know, you don't want to come out being the only piece of people that refuse to, because quite frankly, you will. It, it, it will be known. And we might have to scroll that across. Well, the it was a little bit of a wild threat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so eventually they did. They came along. And, and, you know, I think anybody that eventually, and, and, and this is a shout out to all the publishers companies and, and the people that work really hard in clearance and publishing, you know, it's, it's a, you know, they have stacks like this. And obviously the ones that are worth a lot of money are up here. And the ones like ours are down here. And we made them go through to the bottom of the pile and they had to do it. But I think once they've seen the the movie, they're all very pride, prideful to be part of it, and they yeah, should be. And, I'm and sure. So that was a task. Uh, and then you know, the, the bringing Rob in and to do the score and creating an original song for the end was another part of the process that we had talked about. It we had to have. Ellis had to have his own theme. You know, I mean, he, he had to. You know, it was, it was an important thing that, you know, we had to develop that. And we talked to Rob, Melissa and I talked to Rob about it and made sure it's in his head that, you know, you're not just making music, man. Thematically, you got to build and pay off. And he did with this beautiful song at the end that, that uh, he brought in Layla Hathaway um, to sing. And by the way, the film is bookend by Donny Hathaway in the beginning, because that's the first voice you hear. And Layla's is the last voice you hear in the movie. So that's beautiful. What a, that's another payoff. And, you know, we, that has been fortunate enough to be shortlisted for the Academy Awards. And who knows, maybe we'll get a shot at it and uh, it'll be more cheer for the movies. But yeah, it's a process, but it's 
it's frustrating at time, but it's loving every minute of it because it's a great film. Yeah. Justin, do you want to uh, unmute yourself and uh, ask your question? Yeah. Thank you. Super interesting film. I appreciate you, um, you know, blessing us with it. Uh, my question is less about the film and more about like what it represents. Um, so soul was something that, it, uh, you know, magnified the black experience in its time growing up for me, uh, the, the television show that did that for me was, uh, in living color, right. It was like, um, you know, nice, like black sketch comedy show, um, amazing for me to be able as like a white kid growing up in the suburbs to be able to like see black comedians really doing it right and and all that um now we're in 2021 we've had all this crazy upheaval and uprising last year that kind of brought a lot to the forefront is there some sort of uh television show or series or whatever um that's out now that you would look to as being the thing that can convey the black experience today? Wow, that's a great question. And I've thought about this a lot because people often ask us, you know, do you see if would soul have an opportunity to come back and could it speak to the audience with all the questions we're grappling with about racial justice, social justice, author, you know, um, um, representation, authorship and everything. And unfortunately, there really isn't a show to this day that is as uh, unapologetically uh, black or open or liberal or questioning or, you know, we don't really see that. And I think it's because of the platforms are make the content very limited. So I would love to see a show like Soul. I, there are voices out there that are creating these types of um, conversations, but there's really not a show or a home for that sort of liberal expression in media. And I'm hoping that if we were to bring soul back, we'd almost have to create a, a new platform, something that wasn't beholden to, um, you know, the FCC or um, commercial interests, that kind of thing. And we we're, we're really in this sort of post genre moment for artists, especially musicians being able to, drop their music at any time, not be holding to the label like they used to be. You know, people can clear their SoundCloud and, and start a whole new release or a whole new vibe with their music. So I think we're moving towards that, uh, the sort of post-genre moment also for content. And I'd love to see, you know, I can't speak, you know, monolithically for what's happening in the culture, but there are definitely voices out there. People like Lena Waithe, Issa Rae, um, uh, uh, Amanda Seals, folks who are, Daisy Zamiro, you know, folks who are really breaking the mold, changing the genre and opting outside of the establishment in terms of what is definable or allowable black culture. And we talk about that in the film as well and how Soul was trying to present a, a new way of looking at ourselves in in 1968 through 73. So I really hope so. I really hope that we can push forward and find a new um, expression that would be more commensurate with the new voices we have, especially after, you know, post pandemic, whenever that is, but we are definitely in a moment of change. Yeah. One of the things that, um, that struck me uh, early on in the film and then uh, Amir uh, Questlove 
sort of references it at the end, which is I, I had this thought of I wish we were I wish this documentary was about the 50th anniversary of the longest running black produced and black hosted television show. Um, and, you know, I sort of got distracted with thoughts of all the different forms it would have taken over the years and as disco evolved and hip hop and, you yeah. know, just and, and the, the black experience in New York during that period, it was, you know, it's just fun to sort of fantasize about that and who the hosts might have been. Um, but I wonder, you know, do, do, I guess you sort of touch on this, this question or this answer, but, um, could it have survived without Ellis? Hmm. I don't think so. I don't I really do. think so. <laughs> There's something very unique about Ellis and, and the stamp that he placed, you know, sort of inextricably like you can't really separate the show from his personality even though he was a really reluctant host which i think makes it so charming in the beginning we we try to illustrate sort of this fish out of water vibe and that he really didn't expect to be there and didn't want his own uh personality or perhaps his queerness or perhaps his his neophyte you know vibe to to derail the show which he knew was really important he was always pushing the culture forward but kind of from behind and i think that unique balance uh or sort of code switching that he did really made soul um the unique show that it was and his ability to sort of have both the sacred and the profane you know both mm. the famous and the non both the secular and the non like he made room for all of it. He made room for um, and didn't ask anyone to choose between sort of the secular music of like the gospel church, but also the raunchy music and the profanity of the poets and the, 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 the language of the streets and the griots. And so he saw the sort of totality, sort of a, a, a 360 or a holistic view of black culture and welcomed both uh, agreement and dissent. And you don't usually see that in a show. You certainly don't see it because most hosts are, are either have a polarized view or a very definitive standpoint or the way television is now, it asks every host or every network to take a stance. You know that if you're watching Rachel Maddow, you're probably not going to have Fox News on, you know, so it, it almost feels as if he was so uniquely positioned to welcome this sort of 360 degree um, viewpoint, as I said, that that gave us this, the full extent, the full range of black experience. And um, you see that, especially in the, the episode with uh, Louis Farrakhan, Farrakhan, in which yeah. he welcomes someone who is literally diametrically opposed to who he is as a person. Um, but he's not show, he's not, judging that person he's allowing him the platform for what he brings to to um you know as a leader of his own even though he recognizes that he is reviled and extremely homophobic and to this day and so the, that was a challenge for us we wanted to zero in on his bravery in approaching Farrakhan you know we recognize that he is you know a horrible person <laughs> but we wanted to show what it meant to Ellis and and the strength that he had to have him on the show and what it meant to him personally yeah, to stand yeah. up to him in that way to ask the question with a slight uh tweak to it um did did Ellis stay 
um, tuned in and on top of culture after the show. And did he distinguish, or as he got older, did he distinguish between sort of a high and a low culture? Did he, did he have any knowledge or interest of the emergence of hip hop or street art or, um, you know, where, where did he go in his interests and his awareness? I think he kept going further and further. I like to refer to him as like an Afrofuturist because mm -hmm. he was always sort of looking to the future and looking for greater opportunities beyond our own comprehension or our own experience and understanding the importance of black institution building, what it meant to ascribe, you know, to fight this issue around ascribing value, you know, uh, to the culture, which is often something that would have caused um, the lack, you know, would have caused a lack of culture from existing. He was the one who said, yes, R&B is just as important as Beethoven or, you know, sort of the democratization of black culture was what interested him. And he never changed. He was constantly elevating all forms of culture, both high and low. You know, he would go to Lincoln Center and created a public um, two-day version of, of the television show. I'm sorry, a two-year version of the television show, but in a, a two-week festival, a Black Arts Festival, which is really remarkable. And he got bigger artists to perform at Lincoln Center than he did to perform on the show. For example, Ike and Tina Turner opened one year and he wasn't able to get them on the show. And then Nina Simone opened the next year. And so it was mm. basically soul, but at the center. And so he was always trying to level up, as they say, and create more opportunities. He went up to the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, which is like the Harlem um, New York Public Library, but he made it a cultural mecca and improved the blueprint and invited all kinds of artists to, to have events there and changed the literally the architecture of the building from being just a tiny library to a performance space and creating a theater. Because for those of you in New York, you may remember, it was just a New York Public Library in the 80s until Ellis came. And any kind of cultural events had to happen up at Aaron Davis Hall, you know, in City College. There was no place to convene. And so he was trying to get folks to understand there is this thing called culture and it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, even if you can't see it now. And we must invest in Dance Theater of Harlem. We must invest in, you know, smaller dance companies like Bill, T's, Bill T. Jones and Arnie Zane and just seeing the need. Even we must go to Sing Sing Prison and record songs from the people who were imprisoned there. You know, he was always thinking bigger and bigger and bigger, even till um, when he passed. I don't know that he got, he, he really didn't have enough time to explore hip hop because he passed in um, 91. And so he wasn't fully invested in hip hop then, but. Yeah. Well, that, that, thank you for that answer. Um, uh, Caitlin, I saw you, you mentioned you had a question. Do you want to unmute yourself? Yeah. Thank you, Melissa. I was watching and so enjoyed an interview you did with a young woman named Tiana from kids first organization. Oh, the best yeah. interview ever. And she was 10, you guys. Yeah, that was phenomenal. 10. And I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> Very great. I was wondering and curious what your experience has been like in your biggest takeaways from introducing Ellis to the younger generations and what their reactions have been. Well, that was a precious interview. First of all, it's really funny because 
her review of the film is the only review on our IMDb page. So when you come to read it, just know it was written by a 10-year-old. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. Never, ever, ever, ever talk down to kids because they are writing your reviews on IMDb. Um, it's been really, really, really special. Part of our um, goal was to kind of bridge the gap, to, to have this film be sort of an a chance to bridge the gap for our young folks of today because there is such a gap and most folks think that our culture started with soul train and you know because that's what was visible and so getting them to look a little bit further back and recognize that we're all standing on the shoulders of giants and folks have really made important strides and we have to kind of honor the source with kids today everybody's on their phones and you know tablets and streaming and so they, we were just talking about this before, before we logged on. It's like, they are not, they are of this era, the digital era. They don't understand the analog era. There is no, no such thing. So it's just been really refreshing to share with kids um, this story, which they find really, really inspiring. And they kind of can't believe it because there's a, there's a freedom in, in the footage of the archive that's so beautiful. And you don't usually see that kind of expression with artists who aren't clout chasing and they're not yeah. selling something or they're not, you know, promoting something. They're just being, and they're just doing a whole set for an hour. You know, even Questlove was like, where else are you going to see an entire set without commercials? Yeah. That just doesn't even happen. We just did a talk back with um, Verdine White from Earth, Wind & Fire uh, last week at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that's what he talked about. Like we got to do a whole set and we were so nervous and we were, he said, Maurice was the adult and we were all just kids. And so that just took me, my breath away because here is Verdine White, right? You know, and I was dying in my Zoom, just like, yeah, somebody yeah. get me a casket here because this is too much, right? Yeah. And just well, thinking, wow, they were kids. And so whenever I see and talk to kids about this, I try to have that same kind of, realization you're kids but you're the next generation you're our next leader so whatever you can get out of this is golden yeah ed um am i correct that you have to jump off in a moment or two yeah or? i mean I can, yeah i can answer another question or okay i, I had one more quick one for sure. you um was there anything in particular that um going through the archive or watching footage or watching the film was it was there anything that was particularly revelatory to you or a musical moment that you know sort of stopped you in your tracks well, yes, you know, it was a personal one, actually. <clears throat> um, you know, when I first got into business, uh, I uh, worked for a guy named Shep Gordon, who's a pretty oh, sure. well-known, well-guy in the character in his business. Uh, and one of our clients was Teddy Pendergrass. And I only came in working with Teddy after his accident, you know, his unfortunate accident, because he was literally the guy. Okay, He was the guy. And with that voice. And so, you know, I knew Teddy from, you know, being in a wheelchair and, and who was an amazing cat. And we did a lot of great things with him, you know, when he still was disabled. But I, when, when we saw the footage of him with Harold Melvin and Teddy had the, the, the uh, page hairdo, I'm like, whoa, because that's not the Teddy I knew, right? And, and it was really like 
And I don't in all the years, I don't think I remember ever seeing a picture of him like that, right? Yeah. And that just blew me away. And, and it brought back a lot of memories for me personally on Teddy because I loved him. He was just, he was a guy, he was a guy who was in the chair and, and, and so many accents and was literally at the top of the world, right? But it still was the same Teddy, you know? He was a guy, women loved him, didn't matter what. And, uh, 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 so it brought back a, that brought back a lot of memories for me personally, you yeah. know? I, oh, I couldn't help but wonder during that footage if that's when uh, if that's when Bowie became aware of him um, and went to go start to seek him out for young Americans and all that. That that really blew my mind. That uh, like how would how would he have discovered Teddy? <laughs> it's it's really incredible. well. I I know so so it was actually Luther who we also Luther Vandross who we also managed that ended up working with Bowie. Oh, it's right, Luther's, right, right. It's Luther's arrangements for young That's American. right. That's right. That. Thank you. However, you're, you are right, though. They came to us, um, you know, looking for Teddy and to see, you know, just to check in because he was enamored with, with, with soul music and, and I think Teddy in particular. So you wanted um, Teddy and got Luther? That's exactly what happened. That's not so and, bad. No, not so bad because it ended up working out. I mean, that whole that whole Luther range, that all those vocals, that whole young American, young American. That was Luther, man, and he was the best at that. That he was the best vocal arranger in the business. Um, but Teddy was the star, though, man. That was the guy. I mean, Luther. You know, Luther was his would sing to women, and they would hold up roses. But you know, Luther was in the closet, and you know, he was he. That was his life. Teddy, no. Teddy was the man's man, you know what I mean? Not that that was anything better, but he just, there was pictures of Teddy where, because they used to call him Teddy Bear, right? And when he went solo, he did this crazy thing called for women only concerts, right? And he did like five of them, right? And there was no men allowed in them, right? But you would go all around the world and some guy would come up to you and go, yeah, Teddy Bear, goes, I remember in Houston when he, I snuck in when he did those, that for women only, and then you go, dude, he never played Houston. I mean, like so, so it was one of those things that just got out, right? And there's this greatest shot. It was a solo picture shot. Of, they used to hand out these chocolate um, uh, uh, can, uh, lollipops were teddy bears because his nickname was Teddy Bear. And there's this amazing shot of, 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 of Teddy's over the edge of the, the stage, sweat dripping down. He's a gorgeous man, right? And there was all these women just licking the teddy bear. <laughs> and, right and I remember to the day I die was the greatest picture I've ever seen in rock and roll. It was the best. It oh, the best. Ed, that's great. That's great. Well, if you need to jump, uh, I do. I, I had a fabulous you. time. You guys are great, great questions. You're in really good hands with Melissa, by the way, obviously. And Wait, before you go, can we give a shout out to Ed Gerard, who's nominated for this film hey. for Best I am, Music I, Supervisors, yeah. Music Supervisors. Woo -woo. That's great. You. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So we have our awards in April. Who knows? You know, yeah. All right. Uh, well, maybe we'll have you back on to do a victory lap. Anytime. <laughs> anytime. I appreciate it. All right. I'll be signing off. Okay, cool. Thank stay you, guys. Say bye, Melissa. Okay, bye. So, Melissa, I... um. I was curious, and then somebody else uh, messaged me the question, um, are the archives available to watch anywhere publicly? Like, do I have to come to New York and go to the Museum of Television and Radio? Do you own them? Like, how does that all work? Well, I'm super excited to share that there are 24 that are fully digitized and are available for free. 
So I don't own them, sadly, uh, because they were created at WNET Channel 13. For those of you who are not in New York, that's our flagship PBS station. And so um, they aired out of, P out of Channel 13, even though it went nationwide on PBS after the broad National Broadcast Act. So now uh, there's a company called Shout Factory. You oh, probably yeah. know. They do a lot of sort of nostalgia um, programming, and they were able to get... 24 episodes so you can watch it for free some of the best on um shout i think it's shoutfactorytv.com slash series slash soul i think that'll get you there or something like that and then also luckily through shout factory it's also streaming on amazon prime so if you have prime just go ahead and type soul up in the um, search bar and the very same 24 episodes will come up. Maybe you can watch it on your big screen. There are a couple other two others as well. There's a company called Tubi TV, T-U-B-I. And then there's one called Pluto TV, mm -hmm. um, like the uh, planet. So those four are available for free. I think PBS has some as well, but they have a paywall. So unfortunately, you would have to pay or if you were a subscriber to PBS, um, that's like a membership perk. Theirs is called PBS Passport. But if you just wanted to drop in on PBS, you'd have to pay to be a member or to at least view. And how many total episodes were there? There were 130 episodes. So I'm hoping that, you know, our our film will, the the excitement around the film will generate for them the realization that they really need to re-release it as a series. This is what I pitched to them. You know, when I went in there 10 years ago, I was like, guys, you're sitting on a gold mine. Like, this yeah. is not for me. I'm not out here clout chasing. I don't need this. I don't own this show. But when we make the film, I can guarantee you it's going to make people who either love the series and want to see it again, really want to own it, or it's going to introduce people to the series and they're going to want to see it. So you should take advantage of it and package it, release it, whatever you have to do, time life, time life it, or time Warner it, whatever you need to do. But they haven't done that. So I really have no um, sway when it comes to that. But I know that, you know, we made this for the people. And I know Ellis Hazlip made it for the people. And I really think it should be available to the people. Well, That's maybe in the spirit of Ellis, we need to start a campaign. I think it would be great. Start writing some letters. It does also exist in the Library of Congress. And oh, as great. a researcher, you can go there. And there are some episodes. I think the Paley Center for the Moving Image has it. Uh, so it exists in a couple of places. And then, of course, there's all the bootlegs on uh, YouTube. Um, I didn't put them there, but they are there. There's a couple yes. episodes that you can watch <laughs> that way. Um, I want to I want to be respectful of your time. and um, But I, I did have – I wanted to – no, if you could you give us a little a little sort of color or taste of what what was your relationship like with Ellis and oh. what what role did he play in your life if you don't mind sharing some of that? Oh no, I'd love to share that because he was really really special for me. He was my spirit animal, you know. Um, he was my uncle first of all, but I was really close to him. Um, he lived with us at the time when he was making the show. I was really young, wow. and even though he had his own apartment <laughs> in Chelsea on like fifth Avenue. Uh, he decided that my, my dad, our apartment on West end and 80th street, right across from Calhoun. For those of you who know the TV, the, the school, that looks like a TV set. Um, he decided to live with us and we had a little tiny room in the back. 
But what that meant was he decided. Yeah, he decided. <laughs> that was it, it was decided. And so he was like, I live here now. And that was so great for me because he became my sort of built-in babysitter, mm. which was awesome. And then also he would come home after the tapings and bring with him what turned out to be his friends. You know, the people on Soul really were his friends first. And he had relationships that were not based on celebrity the way we have them now. But these were people who had come up with him. And, you know, the reason Patti LaBelle is the first person on the show is because Patti was his friend. And he was like, come on down and do me a favor. And, and consequently, I wish Ed was still here, but consequently we discovered that when we went digging through, you know, the archives at Channel 13 to say, you know, are there any, is there any paperwork here? You know, did people sign anything? Are there, is there any AF of M stuff we need to worry about? You know, what are the rules here? And we didn't find a lot of contracts that no. artists would have signed to be on the show, which would have impacted, you know, our rights and clearances, et cetera. And so consequently, Ellis Hazel would bring these friends home to my, to our apartment. And I didn't know, I just knew they were special. I knew they were magical. And I found out years later, I was, you know, bouncing on James Earl Jones's knee or, you know, I had like a super crush on like Clifton Davis and he was, he was doing a show, uh, Clif Melbourne Moore Clifton Davis show, which Ellis was also producing, but also that like he would bring over people who had children because it was like a built-in play date. And one of those very special people was uh, Betty Shabazz because uh, after Malcolm was assassinated, um, you know, he took care of her as a friend. Um, and because he was queer, you know, he, it, there was no threat for her to be seen with him in public. And she didn't have that kind of support. We talk about that in the movie a little bit, that as a, a, a wife or a widow of, the, of one of the martyrs of the movement, there was nothing to sort of support her. Yeah. And so he, Ellis took care of her. He would send a car for her. He sent a car for her to bring her and her kids over to our apartment. So I'm running around under the table with Malcolm X's kids. Like, I never knew that. Did he know Malcolm? Yeah, he was very close with Malcolm. They went on a, a journey to Mecca together and they were friends. It was just one of those things. Wow. Ellis is like, like the black Forrest Gump. He's like, he was like <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I didn't understand that until I got older. And I'm like, how does he know all these people? Yeah. You know, and so when I made the film, I tried to create that. And there's a guy in the in the film who actually says, how did he know all these people? You know, he, he knew them and he loved them, but it was not what he could do for them. It was a relationship that they had, which he treasured. I think yeah. that was a line from Ellis Hayes, uh, from Harold Hayslip. Yeah. And so we tried to convey that and that what you were getting on all these special performances was really because of their friendship and that energy and that vibe. Yeah. I have two last quick questions. And then if no one else has anything, we'll, uh, we'll let you go back about your day. But um, my first question is, amongst the people who came over, um, tell me James Baldwin was one of them. And then the other question is, um, did you ever go to the set? I was too, well, let me go backwards first. I was too young to go to the set. And I was like three or four. So I never went to the set. However, some famous kids did go to the set, by the way. One of my rabbit, one of my many rabbit holes was learning that Sissy... Uh, Sissy Houston, who was a very good friend of Ellis's as well, was on the show a couple of times. And, and there was one time that she brought her daughter to the set. That would have been Whitney Houston. <laughs> so 
I went down this whole rabbit hole trying to find the rehearsal photographs of that show. And I found one with a child in it. And I started passing it around to like 100 people saying, does this look like Whitney Houston to you? (laughs) And nobody could verify if it was Whitney Houston. But we all know that she was there. And so there were all these like magic um, things that happened. But the other half of your question is, wait, what was the other half of the question? Uh, James Baldwin. James Baldwin. They were very, very good friends. They were lovers at one point. I can reveal that here. Um, They had worked together, as you know, um, Ellis produced his very first uh, version of um, Amen Corner, which was a European tour in 1965 and went everywhere. And then later, and that's the connection they had later on bringing um, uh, Baldwin was living in St. Paul de Vence and was not was not having it with the States. And so trying to get him together with Nikki Giovanni is why they met up in London because he didn't want to come back. Um, so I never got to meet Baldwin in that context. I did meet him at Yale and I, but I was privy, privy to all the conversations and the back and forth. And I came up as like the kid, you know, I was quiet, but I always was there. And Ellis kind of let me hear a lot of things I probably shouldn't have heard. And so in a way I became the keeper of the stories and he trusted me, but I learned about all of this stuff. I would just listen to his stories of him gallivanting through, um, through Turkey with, with, uh, with, um, with, with James Baldwin, whom he called Jimmy. And one of the books, one of the paperback editions of Jimmy's, um, I think it's either go tell it on the mountain or tell me how long the train's been gone. Uh, it's dedicated to Ellis. And if yeah. you, and there are, he saved El- everything. Everything that Ellis owned, all the ephemera is now in the Smithsonian, uh, the Ellis B. Hazlip collection. And there are hand typed letters from James Baldwin to Ellis. And uh, it's just incredible. I just couldn't put it all in the film, but I hope that maybe I can do like a pop-up exhibit at the Smithsonian and get them to, you know, it's hard to get people to, understand the importance of an unsung hero it kind of takes a movement like a film and reviews and awards for people to understand but it's really just a part of our sort of unsung history or like a hidden gem that i'm really excited uh, might be a little less hidden now yeah well thank you for bringing that to the world and uh to the wider world for the for those of us who missed out on it the first time around um and uh to sort of shine the light on you for our last question or at least my last question. Um, what are you doing next? Or do you have a big idea? Is there something you're excited about? Yes, I, you know, I have a lot of ideas and that's <laughs> why I never stop talking, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm working on a new project, uh, much in the line of my desire to sort of um, do away with this, this, the themes of erasure that we seem to have in our country around around um, people of color's contribution to the culture and women especially. So this is a new project, um, co-executive producing for Netflix. It's about the history of black womanhood in America. Well, not the complete history because it's not done yet, but like the unfinished history of black womanhood in America um, explored through the lens of black women in hip hop, their lives and their music, which is really great because in a way it's, you know, dealing bringing in these voices of some of our favorite hip hop artists and OGs, but they're all women and also the newer ones coming up. So it's not just like Queen Latifah, MC Light and, you know, Salt and Peppa, but it's also Megan Thee Stallion and, you know, 
Cardi B and like every, all the, everyone that we're talking about now. So I'm excited about that. We had to stop because of the pandemic. We didn't get shut down though when Netflix shut down all their shows because uh, we were in development. So hopefully we'll be shooting soon. And Will they be episodic by, by yeah, character? It's a four-part mm-hmm, yeah. four series. And um, I'm, it's we're partnering with Lionsgate and UMG. And so, you know, we've got like the big heavy hitter music big time. Uh, departments behind it. It's not as DIY as my current project. <laughs> and then also I'm uh, slated to direct, uh, co-direct a documentary about Earth, Wind & Fire. So that is, if I could just live and not explode before that happens, that, that's my next project. I'll tell you, I can't wait. People, I don't think, I don't think people in general know about the phases of their career. And exactly. man, that, that first like third of their career is just deep, deep music. It's incredible. Deep, it's incredible. And I'm a super nerd and music fan and musician in hiding. So for me, it's, it's like a dream come true. Oh, that's great. When, when will we get that? Is that years away? No. Well, it might be at least a year away. Ironically, um, it's with, um, you guys know, um, Alex Gibney and, and his daughter. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're literally trying to find some, uh, you know, financial partners to go with it, but it's definitely happening. Yeah. Jig- Jigsaw is going to be the company that's doing it. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to that. Um, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you're, you're such a great spirit and a great storyteller and a great filmmaker. And uh, just it's mm-hmm. such a treat to talk with you. Thank you. You too, you guys. And please hit me up. You know, I'm just here in my igloo. So if anyone wants to keep the conversation going, just, you know, we're on socials. You probably have my email, Mr. Soul Movie at Gmail. And I would love to continue the conversation. And thank you for having me. Don't often get to you know, just chat with folks and um, it's, it's, it means a lot. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, do me a favor and please stay safe. Absolutely. I'm not going anywhere. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In a year. I think the last time I was out was February 20. Well, officially it was February 26. We showed the film at Moad in San Francisco museum of the African diaspora. And uh, they were, that was it. That was like the day they discovered COVID or announced it was happening in um, uh, Northern California. So I hightailed it out of there on the, on a plane and uh, I haven't gone anywhere since. Well, today's the 26th. So happy anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary. <laughs> oh my God. Happy COVID anniversary. We're all going to have one, right? Yeah, I, exactly. Thank God we're still here not to yes. make light of the pandemic and, you know, rest in peace for all the over 500,000 souls. It's not even funny. But I'm super grateful to be here and, um, um, you know, grateful to be able to keep being creative in this difficult time. Yeah, we need that. We need that. So thank you. Be well. Bye, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa Hazlip, Ed Gerard, and the entire team behind Mr. Soul. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week, and in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch.